Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Interesting Hour. I am your host, Justin Kupinoff, and with me, as always, is my good buddy... Devesh Verma. Hey, everybody. This episode of The Interesting Hour is brought to you by Core Foundation. Core Foundation is a multimedia nonprofit. Check us out at cor-foundation.org. And also, Get Inspired, Inc. Check them out at getinspiredinc.org. And today, on our show, we have Nancy Caruso, who is a marine biologist. Yeah, uh, Get Inspired, Inc. is... uh pretty well named considering this episode was actually very inspiring. Um, we get to learn about uh, what happened to all the kelp because it went away for a period of time in California, uh, Southern California. And uh, we figure out what happened to it, why it went away and uh, how it made its triumphant comeback. Thanks to Nancy. She's done a lot of big things and uh, her foundation is not huge. So it is very, very awesome to hear her story. Uh, buckle in for this one. This is going to be a fun episode. Yeah, and there's abalone and drug cartels as well. Oh, so yeah, totally. That's obviously. Fun. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. 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 One, two, three, four. Here we are with Nancy Caruso. What's up, Nancy? Hey, guys. How are you? Hello. How's it going? I'm here as well again. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I introduce the show, I just do not want to acknowledge Justin's here. Granted, he's on the artwork. <laughs> I'm just a small part. It's all good. Yeah. We got Nancy on the show. Nancy, why don't you give a little introduction to yourself? Okay. My name is Nancy Caruso. I'm a marine biologist, and I run a nonprofit organization called Get Inspired. I'm located in Orange County, in Southern California, and uh, the mission of our organization is to get people excited about science uh, in a nutshell. And so uh, that's what really motivates me is science and getting people involved and excited, um, even if they're not scientists, even if they're, you know, art majors or, you know, business people, um, everybody uses science every day. So showing them how it applies to their life and how they can experience it in all different ways uh, is very, very exciting for me. It's awesome. Sounds fulfilling too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a very little bit so. in line with what we're trying to do with our show as well. Uh, exactly. That, I think that's why Nancy's on here. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect fit. <laughs> well, so what are some of the ways uh, that the uh, that your corporation gets people inspired and gets out there and show, gets people excited about science? Well, we're a nonprofit organization. We're a 501c3. And um, we do it actually several different ways. One, um, I, I actually majored in college in aquaculture and marine biology. So um, I'm a farmer at heart. And um, I like to keep a garden in the backyard. But I also love growing things in water. And aquaculture is... Uh, essentially aquatic organisms being grown in water for harvest. So that includes clams and mussels and oysters and fish and shrimp. and uh, But also, you know, you, if you go into any Petco or PetSmart, all those fish are coming from aquaculture farms. And uh, if you buy, you know, garden farm uh, pond plants for your backyard waterfall, those plants mm -hmm. are grown on farms. That's aquaculture as well. So um, I use aquaculture in um, lucky enough to be able to do that for my whole career, growing things and um, kind of using that skill to grow things to put back in the ocean is what I'm doing now. So one of my projects is the Orange County Ocean Restoration Project in which I'm teaching the community, kids and adults, to restore the ocean habitats uh, by growing the organisms and putting them back in the ocean. But I also um, 
teach aquaponics, which is a freshwater sort of aquaculture, um, kind of a big hobby right now in the United States, especially California, because we don't have a lot of water due to drought. So aquaponics grows fish and crops in the same body of water. So for instance, if you have a goldfish tank at home sitting on your counter, mm-hmm. if you're not using that aquarium to grow food for yourself as well, your fish are not really working for you. Uh, <laughs> Dang, you calling get your everybody out. <laughs> yeah, you get your goldfish to grow cilantro and corn and, uh, you know, lettuce. Really? And, uh, yeah, you can put it right in the top of the tank. And I mean, if you think about it, the the gold you know that we all cherish is fertilizer that's what grows our our plants mm-hmm. and whatever form you get it in um it's essentially the poop of another being right, right. so so fish also poop and uh there no way it's it, yeah. <laughs> it's dissolved in the water in your aquarium mm-hmm. and it's sometimes people put plants in there and the plants can utilize that fertilizer but you might as well grow food with it I mean, we usually use chicken poop and cow poop to grow food. Why not use your fish? So I've got my garden in the backyard contains uh, about 10 little feeder fish. They're 19 cents a piece. You can also grow, you know, catfish or tilapia, uh, but you can grow your own fish tacos, literally, you know, your fish, your corn, your tomatoes, your cilantro, everything. And uh, so I teach people how to do that. I I do free classes every month um, to try and and forward the message of aquaculture and, and, but also, here in Southern California, you know, we don't really have open space anymore. So right, yeah. growing food where people live is also a passion of mine. I'm a, like I said, I'm a farmer at heart. So teaching people how to grow in their, you know, on their patios and their kitchen windows, utilizing this, this really, really water conservative technique. It uses 90% less water than traditional farming. Um, is really cool. So I teach that in schools. Um, I also take people out um, on trips to experience nature and learn science while they're doing it. So you may not want to know about the intricacies of geology of Yosemite National Park or Joshua Tree National Park or the San Bernardino Mountains. But if I take you on a really cool hiking trip and camping and we're out experiencing nature and I'm showing you and and teaching you along the way – you're going to come away with science and you didn't even know it as you were having fun. So Tricking I, people into learning. How uh, dare you? How dare you? <laughs> Actually, I mean, you're talking, I maybe you're not talking to the wrong person, but dude, I would, that sounds amazing. I want to know more about Yosemite. <laughs> like that's like my favorite place in the world. Yeah. It's, it's everybody. Well, I just came back uh, two weeks ago from taking a group of people down to Baja to swim with whale sharks. And I was teaching them oh, all about sharks. Oh, my goodness. That is badass. Yes. That is one of my <laughs> dreams to swim with a whale shark. <laughs> oh, my God. Missed it, <laughs> missed it by February. that much. <laughs> <laughs> When's the next one? <laughs> uh, in February, I take groups of people down to hug and kiss whales in Baja. No way. Yeah. So they, they are, you know, they migrate past here every year from Alaska down to Baja and they're going down there to have their babies and to mate. And there's three lagoons that all of them are going to. So we go to a lagoon, uh, Scammon's Lagoon or Guerrero Negro. Um, we fly down there in little tiny planes so that we can, it's a 15 hour drive if you want to drive, but we fly down and, um, stay for, uh, and a bed and breakfast down there. And I, I take people on trips every year, about 20 people. We do 10 people on each trip. And for some reason, unknown to man, in these lagoons and nowhere else in the world, the whales approach humans. They push their babies up to the surface, and you can sit and interact with them, touch them, 
kiss them, hug them, um, look at them, you know, look in the eye of a whale, you know, two feet away from your face. What? Um, it's absolutely incredible. It's a, a magical experience. I have, I have videos of it on my, uh, website you can see, but what's that uh, website by the way? Uh, get inspired inc.org. All right. Have and, you, uh, I do those trips annually. Have you ever seen somebody just break down into tears from this experience? Uh, I have every time. <laughs> That's the first thing I'm thinking. Like if I actually got to go there and I'm like looking at this whale in the face, I would just like, it'd be too much for me. That would be the coolest thing. <laughs> well, I, I, it, it sounds moving. That's what well, it is. It's absolutely a moving spiritual experience. And not only, you know, I cry when I interact, but now I take people down there and I cry when I see them interacting with it too, oh, because man. they're experiencing it for the first time. It's really, really magical. Wow. Um, and, and these are the same lagoon. There'll be 2,500 whales in lagoon with us. And these are the same lagoons that whalers would go to and slaughter the whales because oh my there were 2,500 of them in the lagoons at a time. So there are whales that are old enough to even remember that. Uh, and wow. the whales, That's I mean, they, there's a lot, I can go into hours on the whales, but, um, it, it's a, That's magical, a whole other episode. Yeah. It's a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> Do um, so all these things you're talking about, this is all through Get Inspired, correct? People can- It's all through Get Inspired, yeah. It's all, like I said, everything is geared towards getting people excited about science in, in you know, every way that's possible. All senses, you know, all where everybody's at, you know, I take business people and accountants and artists and, and teachers, you know, all these different people who are not necessarily scientists, but as you know, uh, having just been on the air with a theoretical physicist, um, <laughs> science is everything, you know, all around us, whether we like it or not, mm -hmm. you know, the way our bodies are working is physiology. So there's no escaping and it. it's just a matter of, of showing it in, in a way that everybody can understand it. And, and usually, um, you know, visuals are, are the best way to do that. Experiences are the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's what, I'm able to do. That's amazing. So Nancy, how big are these groups when you go on these like trips? Um, they're very small groups. Usually. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, I've taken groups up to Alaska. I'm a naturalist, um, in Alaska in the summertime as well. Ooh. And so they're usually between the last trip with whale sharks. There were five of us. The max group has been 11. So they're very small, intimate groups. And so I get to, you know, interact with the people very much. They're usually my friends or friends of my friends and, and uh, and that circle grows because um, I work just, with a lot of people. But just continuously brainwashing them just to get exactly. more. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Every, if everybody's all on the same page, then it makes the page turning. <laughs> well, I was curious. What uh, is this? All one species of whale that is in these lagoons, or which one are you speaking about? Or yeah, it's the gray whale. So okay. annually, um, up and down the entire coast of North America. Uh, the whales migrate twice a year. They migrate right now. They've, they're leaving Alaska and the Bering Sea, which is where they spend their summers. Everything goes to Alaska to eat in the summer. But mm -hmm. they're coming down past Washington and Oregon and Canada and California. And, and along the way, there's festivals celebrating this migration annually because it's been going on since before we were here. Mm -hmm. And um, and so people love the whales and and of course, you know, there's always been a, a, an attachment for humans and whales um, because they're big and we can see into their eyes. And and uh, 
so we have we have this affinity for them. But it is the gray whales, and they go down there, they mate, they have their babies, and then they swim back up to Alaska. So every year, four thousand miles down and four thousand miles back up, we get a chance to see them twice a year. And are these are the, the babies are born in the lagoons? Is that mm-hmm. what happens? And yes. then and then right after they're born, they go on this big journey back. Yeah. We'll usually see that you can tell a newborn whale has still got folds in its skin and they look wrinkly and um, and they're they're nursing from their mothers, you know, right in front of you. You can see them feeding and the mom's showing them how to do things, teaching them how to – they don't eat. There's nothing to eat down there except for mm-hmm. their mother's milk, but the mothers don't eat for their uh, – it's thought for their whole migration down and back. So they oh, go wow. up to Alaska oh, wow. – to gain all that weight, just like the humpback whales, they you know they go to Hawaii, but our great the gray whales come down here to Mexico. These whales are always on vacation, man. <laughs> exactly, yeah, round trip, nonstop. They got a lot of miles. I think I was watching in the, the documentary Blackfish, um, like huh? there's orca whales that travel uh, all over the world, but like, or not just orca whales, or just whales, and they will travel all over the world, and they'll come back to one particular spot and make the same exact sound. That they did when they were previously at that spot, like that's insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, well, there's there's uh, orcas that travel around. Um, there's mm-hmm. some that come by here when the gray whales start migrating. Mm-hmm. So we get or- orcas off of L.A. and Orange County because they they feed on the baby gray whales. Um, and then there's some that never leave, like the the um, the islands off of Vancouver. I can't remember right now at the moment. Prince Prince? No, not Prince no, Edward. Prince. Yes, Prince Edward Island. Yeah. Um, Good job, Justin. So they, I did no, something right this, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nancy. So they, they never leave that area, and some of them do move around quite a bit in order to find food. So there's there's different types of orcas in the world. Wow. And so, hmm. How do I drop to this next topic? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like enamored with whales. Right now. <laughs> we but need to have an episode. Unfortunately, on whales. we can't, we can't <laughs> fill this whole time on whales. Uh, so yeah, you have to watch the video. It's it's quite astonishing. Um, I'm not from California. I'm actually from Virginia, and I grew up um, probably two hours from the ocean. Um, but when I moved out here, I started watching Hauser. And that was in 1997. Um, and that's how I learned about California and California history. And one of the first episodes I ever saw was him going down to Baja to go and touch these whales. And I, I remember watching it and going, I have to do that. And uh, I eventually got a group of people together and we drove down there. I've been down there like 12 times now to do this activity mm-hmm. and it's, it's totally magical. That's why I wanted to start bringing people with me. Um, plus I, I like to travel with people anyway, but, um, <laughs> it, but he introduced me, Hill Hauser, God bless him, uh, introduced me to the whales as well as many, many other things in California. Um, and so that was a long time ago. And every time I go down there, there's, there's no resorts, you know, there's no hotels. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, thankfully. And there's a whole, three-inch book that's been written about the the gray whales called Eye of the Whale, if anybody's interested in that, um, that explains all of the environmental issues that have gone on with protecting these these lagoons that they go down to. Um, the NRDC was kind of born out of that movement, actually. Interesting. And, um, and the world's largest evaporative salt mine is in one of these lagoons. But I see people there from all over the world 
who, you know, fly into LAX, drive 17 hours to a foreign country. <laughs> and I'll, I've meet people from Austria and Japan and Norway in the middle of nowhere. I mean, wow. there's, there's maybe wow. like three or four other little pongas out on the water with me when I go. <laughs> and you know, there's no giant crowds or anything. It's just a, a really wild, natural, unnatural experience. Uh, natural unnatural experience <laughs> yeah. absolutely so you know let's segue into this how did you get into marine biology coming from virginia yeah uh well when i was 10 years old i, I lived right outside of dc in alexandria and fairfax county and we had a great school system luckily uh there were a lot of government employees in the area my my dad worked for the Secret Service in the White House and what? Okay, that's yeah, cool. That's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to have my birthday party on the White House lawn. But anyway, um, okay, that's so, all right. That is cool. That was very cool. It was the company picnic. Fourth of July is my birthday, so I used to go there for. Oh, the that's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so, um, it's so little plug in case everyone grade. wants to get a present on the Fourth yeah. of July. By the way, yes, <laughs> don't forget. I have a huge party. Everybody's invited. <laughs> The whole country. Uh, yes, the whole country. Uh, Ten years old, fourth grade. I was in like one of those gate programs where they'd pull us out of class once a week and do something really cool and creative with us. It was very, very creative learning environment. So it was, you know, building architecture, um, you know, wordsmithing, all kinds of cool uses for your brain mm -hmm. and to get us thinking. In this particular day, we were building the continental plates out of paper mache and we learned that that there was this land i didn't realize most kids wouldn't give a thought that there's land underneath the ocean you know you kind of mm -hmm. just think of the ocean as being water yeah and mm -hmm. they they explained the continental plates and plate tectonics and i went holy cow that day literally changed my entire life so i went home and started reading books and we had of course everybody had an encyclopedia set at home. So I was reading an encyclopedia and found out <laughs> <laughs> that that was called oceanography, you know, the study of the plates underwater. And mm -hmm. so uh, I thought, oh, that well, that's what I want to be. And so all of my career reports and all of my book reports and anything I, I had to read was all about oceanography. And then a, a couple of years later, I realized that um, the study of animals in the ocean was called marine biology. And that included, you know, the animals and their habitats and the living things. And I went, no, that's it. That's what I want to do. So it was by the time I was 12, I had honed in on exactly what I wanted to study. And I didn't know anybody else who had any interest in the ocean. I'm not like California where everybody here wants to be a marine biologist. I didn't know anybody else. <laughs> I was kind of a black sheep. You know, I liked uh -huh. whales and fish and um, so I was weird. And, and you're in Virginia. And they're like, what's I'm wrong with you? Virginia, yeah. <laughs> so I got, I got scuba certified when I was 16. I, I knew no one else who was a scuba diver. And, um, and then I knew one, uh, finally, when I got to high school, my mm -hmm. junior year of high school, I had heard there was one other kid who wanted to be a marine biologist. And he went to school at the Florida Institute of Technology. And, um, his name was Carl Rush. He was a trumpet player. And so I went, that's where I'm going to go because I, I knew nothing else about it. So <laughs> I, I went to the exact same school he did and uh, I got a great education and um, 
and and I said majored in aquaculture and marine biology because I realized my dad would tell me you're never going to get a job you're never going to get a job you should be a nurse in the army and <laughs> it was very much against me doing that going into that field because it it actually is very hard to get a job it's hard oh, to I'm stand sure. it, anything like that yeah it's just, it's difficult like I you it's hear that with difficult. like coming from an Indian family if I mentioned anything I wanted to do outside of being a doctor an engineer or a, or a dentist a Seven <laughs> Eleven but like then it's like what are you doing? <laughs> or are you stupid? Like that's not secure. Right. <laughs> so how are you going to do it? How are you, you going to get there? I'm like, I don't know, man. Let me just do my thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you did that though. Cause like, look at all well, the stuff yeah. you accomplished. Like, like let's, let's like, let's segue that into kelp fest or just kelp really. Uh-huh. Because the stuff you've, you've done is actually palpable. Like it's noticeable. People know what you're doing. Uh, like kelp 30 years ago, there was no kelp on the what was California coast. Yeah, was, is that true that 30 years ago we had like no kelp beds on the coast? Well, California is a huge coast. Right. And it's Northern okay. California has a different species of kelp than Southern California, believe it or not. There's different kinds of kelp. So kelp mm-hmm. is defined as large or macro, as biologists would call it, macro algae, which means really big algae. And it is in Southern California, it's called giant kelp. That's the common name. In Northern California, it's called bull kelp. And if you've <laughs> ever, we, we actually have a little bit something like it down here. If you've ever been to the beach and you see a really big, like bowling ball sized uh, gas bladder, gas bubble, mm-hmm. and it's got a long whip on it. And uh, it's actually called bull kelp because of the, it looks like a bull whip, but it has this gigantic, looks like a head on the end of it and when it has the leaves on it, it looks like it could be a mermaid it's like starbucks mermaid yeah oh, wow. so yeah so that kelp up north is and the, and they don't have the same species that we do it down here point conception is like the the breakaway point the currents are different so they have all different species up in northern california down here in southern california 80 percent of the kelp had disappeared uh, by the year 2000 and it takes a lot to collapse an ecosystem. So it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of a hundred years and, and nobody really noticed it because it's invisible. It's underwater. Mm-hmm. So there were people saying, you know, there used to be more fish around here and what happened to all the fish? But uh, nobody was saying, Hey, where'd that kelp go? So, right. mm-hmm. uh, Luckily, um, I I was working at the Aquarium of the Pacific at the time, and I really wanted to Love do something. Love that place. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I helped. To, Love that I opened place. it, actually. No. I was one of the first uh, uh, employees to work there. I met my husband there. He was a volunteer oh, diver look at there. Oh, gosh. That's so cool. It was great. That's um, awesome. That was in 1998 when it opened. I was a chemist at the aquarium, so I took care of the water chemistries. Um but so, I really smart. wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little smart. Well, I had to endure a lot of chemistry in college, so I'm glad it paid off somehow. <laughs> He's just like, at least I got to use it. Now I'm done with that exactly. part of my life. <laughs> I cursed it daily. Oh, I believe it, man. I hate chemistry. <laughs> it was awful. Hmm. So the the kelp project came up. I was I got a job working for a small nonprofit in Orange County that had just gotten a grant to collaborate with all of these other organizations in Southern California to do a giant project to restore the kelp forest. And this was in 2002. At that time, it was really unheard of to like go to a scientific conference and hear anybody present any data that was collected by quote unquote citizen scientists. 
or right, volunteers. Right. And everything's changed now. Uh, every conference has results that are being being reported with citizen scientists, especially, you know, at people that are out in the field. And they're even using people, you know, game. I think gamers were helping to solve some genetics issues in laboratories by working algorithms or something for for geneticists. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> so so people are are getting involved in science in that way, which is awesome too. And so this this project for the kelp restoration was to utilize the community, which is kind of unheard of, to restore an ecosystem, and that ecosystem was underwater. So I was in charge of the project in just in Orange County, and then I eventually became the manager of the entire regional project for a while. Um, and through this entire process, it was a federally funded grant, but I got laid off three different times in the process. And oh my I, goodness. luckily the grant was funded. So the project had to still go on. So I would just move, you know, with the, with the project and the money to another organization. And, um, so finally, after the third time I got laid off, I said, forget this. I'm just going to start my own. <laughs> and so I started Get Inspired, uh, and I named it that because I had had such a wonderful experience. It was so inspiring to have literally thousands of people help me accomplish the goal of restoring an underwater ecosystem, which I really had no idea how I was going to get people excited about an algae when I started. <laughs> it's an algae. And most people in their lifetimes never go underwater to see it. So it's a really isolated ecosystem, you know, that nobody really gets a chance to see. Mm -hmm. Although most reap the benefits from it because kelp is in so many different parts of our lives. And it's important to 800 species that, of course, we eat or we love the sea lions and the seals. And they feed in the kelp forest and the pelicans and the cormorants and they are in the kelp forest. And, you know, we we utilize the kelp for thousands of products that are used uh, as consumers. It's in pet foods and, and cosmetics and it's an emulsifier and thickening agent, binds things together, makes things creamy and smooth. So everybody is connected to it, although they had no idea that they were connected to it. Right. And that's the alginate you're talking about? About? Yeah, there's there's a compound in the cells of this of the giant kelp that is um, called alginate, and it's used in products. Like I said, thousands of products, um, just to name off a few: um, Gaviscon, Eclipse breath strips, um, Mrs. Smith's <laughs> pies, blueberry any blueberry Not waffles, the pies. Any, diets, <laughs> any diet salad dressing, um, Nesquik. Um, any chocolate milk that's readily available, not, you know, not mixing it yourself. Um, Mrs. Fields cookies, um, wow. cheese whiz, macaroni and cheese. So anything where there's, it's it's all processed foods, but anything that is creamy and smooth or needs to be bound together, like pet food, is all just pieces and parts of things, right? So they bind it together, right. and they use alginate as a binding agent. So. Um, that's and they used to harvest it actually along the coastline here. You can watch the Sea Hunt TV show that used to be on TV in the 1960s, and you'll see there's an episode, especially uh, with this thing called a kelp cutter. 
And this big giant barge would come through and cut the kelp four feet below the surface and haul it up onto a barge. And they would take it down under the Coronado Bridge in San Diego to a company called Kelco. And they would process it under high heat and, and pressurization and get the alginate out. And then they'd sell it all over the world to companies that were using it to process all these, these products. So it's important to everybody, but they didn't know about it. So over the course of 12 years, uh, I, I went into schools and taught kids how to grow it. And they, they had nurseries in their classrooms. I would teach a whole year-long curriculum for them. I trained 250 volunteer divers. And with the help of uh, about 6,000 kids in their schools and in 32 different schools in Orange County and L.A. County and these 250 divers, we restored the Orange County kelp forest, but we also, like I said, I eventually managed the project for the other counties as well. And the kelp came back after being gone for 30 years. That's so cool. Man, you talk about just going out there and getting something done and yeah. just making it happen. That is such an awesome you're like, story. You're, you're waiting for other people to get laid off three times. Like, all right, these jokers don't know what they're doing. <laughs> like, let's just, I'll handle it. I'll, ha- exactly. I'll handle it. Get inspired. It's done. <laughs> get inspired. Yeah. But, and, and what was really magical, what was so inspiring was that, uh, I mean, algae is microscopic when it starts to grow. You can't even see it. Mm-hmm. And so the kids in the schools from about sixth grade to 12th grade were growing these organisms, these little kelp spores, and they grew them for about four months. And then the volunteers would take them out and plant them. And, and we would show videos to the kids of their of their kelp and how it was growing because it can grow two feet a day. It's the fastest growing aquatic organism or aquatic um, plant, essentially algae in the world. Is it really two feet a day? I didn't know that. That's an inch an hour. Yeah. Oh it's, wow! It's magnificent in its ability to grow. So as soon as we put it in the ocean, it would take off. And I've got we grow them on little pieces of bathroom tile. I mean, this is all not really like rocket science. We had bathroom tile strips we grow a kelp on and then I'd take it out put it on the reef with a rubber band and I've got these photos of the kelp you can see it it's taken off it's about a foot and a half tall when we planted it it was only about a quarter of an inch tall and within a couple of weeks it'd be two feet tall and the little root structure is growing off the tile and starting to make contact with the reef it was it was beautiful actually you could watch it happen it's not like that, a redwood. That should be like a 4K time lapse thing. <laughs> like yeah. that would probably be. I really want to see a time lapse <laughs> of this stuff growing. But I had, I had a quick question. Uh, so yeah. it, since it grows so fast, like how did it? How did it leave us to begin with? How did we lose 80? percent What was mm. that from? Well, like I said, it takes a lot to collapse an ecosystem. So briefly, um, in the 1880s, the last sea otter was killed in Southern California, and we killed those for their fur. It was very prized fur. So they are extinct in Southern California since then. The sea otter eats everything, namely sea urchins. Mm -hmm. And sea urchins are the number one predator, if you want to use that word, of kelp. So starting in 1880... There was no more predator for the sea urchin. And then in the 1950s and 60s, all of Southern California got paved over because that's when everybody moved here. Hmm. So we have an increase in, yeah, an increase <laughs> as well, yeah, the increase in the amount of a sediment that's in the water. So if you've ever been over to Catalina, the water is totally clear from top to bottom, almost year round, right? You can see 40 feet from the surface to the bottom of the ocean. Same ocean. But here, 
Um, I know here in Orange County, there's about 7 million gallons of water that run off into the, into the ocean every single day. Just from every person, whoops, you know, a gallon of water from your lawn gets washed into the storm drain and wow. down into the ocean. Just 7 just million one gallon. gallons of water a day? Yeah, a, a day. So LA County is even bigger than us and San Diego County is right below us. So runoff and of course rain events are huge, but it's increased the amount of sediment in the water, the silt kind of stuff in the water. And mm-hmm. so that just means for an algae, there isn't a lot of light transmittance getting to the bottom of the ocean anymore. So where kelp right. historically grew, and we have actually, it's awesome, we have data going back to 1913, where kelp historically grew out in 110 feet of water, it only grows now in a maximum of about 60 feet because the sun just doesn't get down that far anymore. That was oh, number I didn't two. even think about that because yeah. there's so much yeah. sediment in the water that it can't that it can't sense. grow that far out. Yeah. Oh wow. So the number three thing was that we're also fishing the other predators of sea urchins, which are lobsters. They eat sea urchins. That's a commercial fishery here in Southern California, and another fish called sheephead, which eat sea urchins. So the number four thing was the El Nino of 1983. And that was the last straw, so to speak. So the El Nino effect generally in a kelp forest is that it rips out all the kelp because of the big storms and throws mm-hmm. it up all into the beach. But it's like a forest fire. So it cleans out the reef and everything gets a fresh start again and it's, it works. You know, it, it comes back within a few months because the water gets cold and, and it can grow back quickly. But because it was already so stressed and there were literally millions of urchins all over the reefs um, – Reefs, I've, I have pictures that you just see carpets of purple. There's no space even in between them where kelp could possibly grow. So there's no chance. Um, there's literally nothing growing on the reefs. It was like you could drag a, an anchor across the top and it, you know how it scars rock if you were drag something yeah, really yeah, heavy yeah. metal? That's what they looked like because it was just, they were the urchins were scraping every living thing off the reefs. It's horrendous. <laughs> and they can, they're, they're absolutely amazing animals. They can live for 200 years. They what? can go without food for at least five years. And they'll just scavenge on anything that they can get in order to survive. They're amazing creatures. I wonder if you just made a listener think they're like our enemy. <laughs> they cannot Well, live. I have revered them now because I've spent most of my time restoring the kelp was all of my volunteers and I – prying them off of the rocks with a knife one at a time, putting them in a laundry basket and transporting them up to the surface to reposition them to the deep water. Wow. Because we could not get kelp to grow if they were there. So we had to get the permit, you know, everything was permitted by everybody, but Mm -hmm. permits to remove them and put them out in deep water to to make room for the kelp to grow. And then we had to bring in the, the, you know, the parents to make babies. Essentially, you can't have offspring without parents. So you have um, to manage that too, then. Like, oh, yeah, like it was huge. a massive effort. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. like, oh man, because uh, the age group of people that are going on these trips with you, like helping out, like you mentioned earlier, just one more time, like, are you? Because I think there's also students that are doing this. You said there's business people, like adults too, like people get involved helping you do this kind of thing. Oh yeah, I couldn't have done this. It's just me. So I had the students, like I said, about 6,000 kids in Mm -hmm. schools that were growing it in 32 different schools for the 12 years that we were doing this. And then I had, I trained 250 volunteer divers. They're just, you know, the grocery store clerks and the bank accountants and 
whoever who oh, could come and, out and, and dive with me. And what grades so, were these students in that were helping the, the 6,000 students? Six through 12. Six through 12. Mm-hmm. They can get involved just like that. All right. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's done. Kelp Forest complete. Woo. That is awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for your work. I know. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. No, that's that's no easy. Like, yeah. And then also you started uh, Kelp Fest as well, correct? Yeah. Well, that's another interesting story. So we, we got to about 2009 and, you know, my volunteers and I were obviously very close, right? We're, we're working on this together. I couldn't do it without them. They felt like it was theirs. That, that was the beauty of this project is everybody took a stake in the health and protection of this ecosystem. I mean, everybody was working really hard. We were diving mm-hmm. three days a week wow. for, you know, six years or seven years. I know you guys are working, project. but that sounds like fun. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it was, I, and I made so many friends, but everyone, you know, would watch the failures and watch the successes and, and, and they took pride and ownership in the project, which made it all the more special. Mm-hmm. Um, but 2009. So finally we got kelp, kelp canopies. That means all the kelp came up to the surface and you could see it from the air, you know, out right. on the beach, you'd see the kelp on the surface. So we were so excited. That was like our success that all these kelp canopies had formed. And, um, so everybody was high fiving and we were celebrating, you know, <laughs> having parties. And, and I, I got a phone call from the, um, city council of Laguna beach. And they said, Nancy, we have a problem. And I said, what do you mean? Well, Laguna Beach used to be diving Mecca, diving capital of Southern California. And mm-hmm. so I focused, because of the kelp, um, and for 30 years it didn't have it. So I focused a lot of my efforts in Laguna Beach to try to restore those beautiful kelp forests mm-hmm. for the species that used to live there. And it's now a marine protected area, thankfully. So, um, anywho. That's awesome. The, the city, yeah, the city called me and said, we have a problem. And I said, what do you mean? And they go, well, there's kelp washing up on the beach and people don't <laughs> like it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, you, you know, plant a tree and the leaves fall off and people want the tree cut down. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and and so I said, well, wait a minute. They're, they've missed the whole idea here. And she's like, well, I'm telling you, I'm getting calls. People are complaining. And I thought, holy crap. I totally <laughs> forgot to educate the citizens of Laguna Beach about, you know, they're busy working and doing whatever they do. And. You know, I'm out there toiling away under the ocean. They don't see what's going on. All of a sudden, they got seaweed washing up on their beach. So a friend of mine and I were like, we're just like sitting back going, I cannot believe this is happening. And, um, you know, I was pulling up historical photos showing people this is what it's supposed to look like. You know, 1902 Laguna Beach. You see all the kelp on the beach? Yeah, I saw some of those photos that you put up. Are you talking about like the black and white ones, right? Yeah. Like the really old ones. Yeah. And so it's supposed to be there. It's a whole other ecosystem. You know, it's a place for birds to come and feed. It's actually a place for kelp, <laughs> Laguna, um, kelp flies to grow. It's, it's part of the ecosystem. And um, if you let it alone, the next big high tide will drag it back out onto the ocean and it'll reproduce. That's, that's, that's the whole idea. Oh, wait. So if it's, if it's actually up on the, on sure. the beach and, yeah. it's sound, and it's you know kind of doing that thing, there's flies and it's not too pleasant to smell – that that's not actually dead. That can actually. That's just yeah, a process. Yeah, it's not dead unless it's all shriveled up and dried up, like you know, leaves in fall. Okay. So, so yeah, the idea is that in nature, it's supposed to stay there. 
it stays moist because it's all wrapped up on itself. Mm-hmm. And the, the next big high tide will roll it back out in the ocean and then it releases spores. So uh, a friend of mine and I were talking and he goes, well, we need to have a, a big education festival right. here in Laguna Beach. So that became Kelp Fest. That, that became Kelp Fest. That became Kelp Fest. I'm and glad the idea you guys go, I, I, was, to, sorry, go was on. to foster an appreciation for the kelp in the community through all kinds of visual arts. You see, you had art. a great idea of Kelp Fest. If it was me, I'd be like, does Laguna have like billboards? Did we just get a billboard? <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully people will read it and say, hey, this is what it's supposed to look like, guys. A black and white photo. <laughs> it's just, well, it's kind it's of just a billboard that says stop complaining. So. Yes, yeah, I'll our hashtag educate yourself or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, no, Kelp Fest, that's awesome. And uh, that's but, still going today, correct? Yeah. Well, Kelpfish became, I, I would have all the kids, you remember I had all these 6,000 kids. I'd have all the kids put it on and I'd say, okay, this is what we need to do. How do we do it? And so, of course, visual arts were the way to do it. So we would have every possible way that a person could experience and understand and appreciate kelp through live sculpting, live painting, music. There's actually people that make music about the ocean and kelp. Um, live music, um, you know, public murals going on, um, kelp dancers running around. We would build kelp forests, you know, have kids and adults painting and, and building things to put into the kelp forest. So very interactive. And I had a kid one year who, who said, you know, because I like to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say, well, what are you good at? What are you good at? People come to the meeting and I wanted them to participate in whatever they do. And he goes, well, I don't know. I don't really like the ocean. I go, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? He goes, I want to be a chef. And I go, okay, can you make us a seaweed salad and let people taste the ocean? He's like, yes, I can. So he brought seaweed salad to Kelp Fest and and fed everybody seaweed so they could taste it. And the idea was to to make people walk away going, wow, that's really cool. I had no idea. I love it. Of course you did. Yeah. I love it. You were totally. Of course, you made get inspired. That's amazing. You, you, that's awesome. That's so cool. Okay, yeah, I dig it. Yeah, seaweed salad. <laughs> I want to taste seaweed. Is it, but it's you can't. Really you good. can't eat. The, I've had seaweed salad before, but you can't eat the like any of the kelp stuff that we have here. Oh can yeah, you? of course you can. Really. It's that, very high in iodine, the kelp. So all right, be careful. Tell, all right, you tell, got goiters or something. You don't want to. Or else what? <laughs> Rewind. Rewind. Hold on. <laughs> Say that again. So my mouth is already halfway full stuff with kelp right now. <laughs> Just- you can eat all. The- so there's there's even companies in the state of Maine that are farming kelps and other uh, algae as sea vegetables. You can buy them in the grocery store. They're frozen vegetables quote-unquote, mm-hmm. um, from the sea. So they're doing aquaculture on uh, marine algae and selling it uh, because it's very nutritious. Every single element in the periodic table is in the ocean. So if you're eating seaweed from the ocean, good Lord, you're getting everything. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Survival tip. That and it tastes good. I really love those like little uh, the seaweed-like strips. Yeah. It's like the... Lightly salted, maybe a little pepper. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get bougie on me, Justin. Okay, please. That's, um, and Nancy, I want to talk about like local coastal uh, ecosystems. Like you're obviously familiar with Southern California and Florida since you went to school there. Um, how do these ecosystems differ, like worldwide? Like you were saying briefly about Catalina, like how the water there is like really clear versus even though we're the same ocean. 
like California is not so much. Like, how are these different? Like, what are what are things that people can expect to find going around the world or just around the country? Well, as as you can imagine, it's my hobby to go and dive in different places around the world. Um, oh, really? Thankfully, <laughs> that's where I met my husband. Is that he was a volunteer diver at the aquarium? So that's <laughs> our hobby together. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when we go away, that's where we're going is someplace in the water to go and, and scuba dive. And, romantic, um, romantic. Yes. Yeah, we even <laughs> learned sign language so we can talk underwater. Oh, um, that is so cute. That's awesome. Okay. Cuteness overload. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> stop, stop showing us uh, showing us up, please. Let's keep going. <laughs> now I've got to learn sign language with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he can also cuss at me underwater. So <laughs> That's the only reason why we never learn sign language. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Get away from the freaking fire corps. Exactly. <laughs> this is bull kelp, man. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> Sorry. So, coastal <laughs> ecosystems. Okay. We got off topic. I forgot where we were. Oh, oh yeah. You travel the ecosystems. world. You dive with your husband. So uh, the the earth is kind of divided up into bands, kind of like the forest too. So we have the polar regions where it's cold, mm-hmm. and then we have the temperate seas. If you move down to like um, Washington, Oregon, California, and Baja, and then you have the equatorial seas, which are tropical. You know, you usually see the corals there and the beautiful clear water there. Mm. And then it goes, you know, same thing as you go down to the, to the, the South Pole. So then you have temperate seas again along um, the south coast of South America. And then you have the polar seas in the South Pole. So the ocean pretty much operates the same in those bands. So there's animals that live in the polar regions and only in the cold water. And then there's animals that live in the temperate seas and only in those cool seas like we have here and then there's animals that only live in the tropical seas and depending on where you are around the globe there could be different species in the atlantic versus pacific but generally um you know you only see those families uh of fishes uh in those zones so um you know i i studied in the caribbean and i couldn't wait it actually took me till probably about eight years ago to get into the Pacific because or the tropical Pacific, because it's kind of far away from here. You got to go really far. You know, Hawaii is kind of an intermediary. Mm-hmm. There's different species there than there are in the real tropical Pacific. So I'd, I'd gotten to Hawaii, but, um, but you see the corals, you know, in the tropical Pacific, the soft corals and just an abundance of, of different species of fish and, um, wow. And you don't have those corals here in the temperate seas where the water is a little cooler. Some people would say it's cold, but it's, it's a lot warmer than the, than the Arctic, of course. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> it's all relative. It's all relative. <laughs> I haven't been that but far. Our, it's cold to me. <laughs> <laughs> our kelp forests are second to coral reefs in the world. Uh, in the world's oceans for productivity. So the Hmm. most biodiversity in the world's oceans is on coral. The second place you would find the largest biodiversity is in the kelp forest. Oh, wow. What's, what what are some of the, I think you've already named a few, but what what are the ones that like live like in that kelp forest? Like that's their jam. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, otters would be the ones that live in the, in the temperate forests. Um, they're most notable because they're furry and people like them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have sea lions, we have seals that live in, in our temperate forests here. And then some of the, 
the notable species would be abalone. Uh, they only live in the temperate seas. Which is our um, next, next topic. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Um, don't get too excited, Nancy. I don't want anyone. <laughs> I don't want to give anything away. What's about to come for the, for the listeners? But yeah, uh, we've got sardines. You know, those are very famous in California for swimming the coast and and for harvesting. Um, but we also have we have animals that swim from the tropics into our coastal areas when the water here gets warmer. So um, people talk about going out and fishing for uh, mahi mahi or dorado. Mm-hmm. Um, or they'll fish for um, salmon, you know, up the coast that come from the colder regions. Um, they can come down into the warmer regions in the in the summertime. But they don't come so, down like this far. Generally, like- we we actually have a, a a species that's supposed to be here, but it's kind of extinct because um, we don't have any water to for them to swim up and down the rivers through right now. Oh. Um, the steelhead salmon. Um, are are from Southern California, um, but also tuna. So tuna live generally in warmer waters down in Mexico, but in the summer or an El Nino event when the currents change and that warm water comes up here, the tuna will follow the warm water because their food is in it mm-hmm. and they'll come up along our coast as well. So sometimes there's a little bit of mixing that goes on, especially with those migratory fish. Hmm. Awesome. Well, I guess without further delay, since we've teased it, <laughs> you've done a lot of work with abalones as well. So what the heck is an abalone? Yeah, well, nobody under the age of 40 knows what an abalone is. So Me, me. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I, not since well, meeting you, I know. <laughs> and I'm over 40, but I didn't live in California, so uh, I didn't grow up with them. Mm. But for, for people in Northern California, they'll still know this story. But in Southern California... There was a time, and it was in the 19, probably the heyday was the 1950s and 60s, going into the 70s, where a small snail, um, actually it's pretty large, actually, they get about, the largest ones are about 13 inches, a small snail that most people are familiar with when it's dead, because they have gorgeous shells on the inside, Mm -hmm. um, grew along our coastline, and um, for 15,000 years, the Native Americans ate them. And um, it took really, it's a beautiful story the way it all happened, but the Chinese immigrants that helped build the railroad out to the west arrived in California and they looked around and there were all these abalone all over the beaches. And they, they kind of looked around and said, hey, you guys don't eat these? You know, hee hee, <laughs> great, we're going to take advantage of this. And so there were, there's beaches all up and down our coast you may have visited called China Cove or China Beach. And those were all established so that the Chinese could dry abalone on the beaches and they were exporting them back to China. To the, and this was the late 1800s to early 1900s, like the early teens. Um, mm-hmm. And the U.S. government actually had to pass legislation to stop them because they weren't making any money on the exports. So they kicked all the Chinese off the beaches and the Chinese went to Baja. So the abalone had a little reprieve for a few years. And remember, they weren't diving because nobody knew how to dive yet. So they were just taking them out of the tide pools. And then the and Japanese, they would still get that many of them just from the tide pools? They oh, didn't yeah. even need to dive. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So the Japanese wave came in, and they kind of did the same thing. You guys don't eat these? And, <laughs> and, you know, we eat these at home. So they were going out, and the Japanese knew how to free dive, right? Because they're, they're diving. Oh, the pearl, like, they're famous for, like, pearl diving and stuff, right? Exactly. So this was in the, in the late teens going into World War II. And as we know, the sad story that 
in World War II, the Japanese were all rounded up and interned in camps in California. Right. Mm-hmm. So that also stopped the the harvest of abalone. And right around the time, right around before the war, there was a guy. There's a story. Um, the abalone king of Monterey. I have the book right in front of me. Um, he, I tell the kids the story. He served a dish, an abalone dish. He had figured out how to serve it because you can't just eat it out of the shell. It's like trying to chew on your shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's real quite thick. delicious. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's really kidding. thick, muscular snail, and you have to slice it up really thinly and then hammer it out to break up the muscle. So you're like pounding it like you're tenderizing meat. Mm-hmm. Wow. And he served it to somebody on the caliber of like Taylor Swift. And she tweeted about it in 1940, however <laughs> tweet then, and in Vanity Fair or whatever, who wrote about it. Mm-hmm. And everybody had to have abalone. And that was the, the, the end, the kiss of death for abalone. Because that was a big tipping point. Exactly. So scuba diving gear started. They it, they enhanced the gear so people can stay down longer. And get this, the commercial take for abalone in that time period, the 50s and 60s, was 1,100, 1, sorry, it was 140 dozen a day, 1,440 abalone a day. A, a day. day. Per fisherman. Wow. Per fisherman. Wow. Per fisherman. That's- so that tells you after those – Harvest events, and then fourteen hundred forty a day. That's how many abalone there were. Wow! And that went on until nineteen ninety seven. Oh my! So goodness. this this it just used to be flush with abalone out there. Yeah. Well, by the seventies, it was starting to taper off. You know, they they keep track of the landings of these fishermen when they come in, mm-hmm. and they were starting to get less and less and less in their sacks, and so. Uh, but nobody wanted to close the fishery. It was so important to the people who were diving and the commercial fishermen who were still. And, of course, the price was going up and up and up and up. So uh, it took until 1997 uh, where a friend of mine, actually, um, who lives here in Orange County, helped write the bill to get abalone, the commercial take of abalone halted in California and is now prohibited. For anyone to take abalone for commercial use in California, and it is prohibited for anybody to take abalone for any use in Southern California. And this is today. This is right now. Today, yes. Is that just green abalone, or it is all species? There are seven species in California, um, and one, a few of them also range into Oregon, Washington, and and Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are seven species in California. Two of them are now on the endangered species list. Um, there are three of them that are listed a federally species, federally listed species of concern, mm-hmm. and there are also um, how many does that leave me? Two that um, <laughs> we don't really know the status of, but they're all in decline. And the green abalone, which is the one that's here in Orange County, we have two species that are that used to be very prevalent: the orange, uh, the green abalone, and the pink abalone. Mm-hmm. Um, they are both listed as federally listed species of concern, and their densities are one percent of what their original baselines were. Seriously, that's crazy. Yeah. But I, a, am I wrong? You were talking about commercial fishing, but I can you still personally fish for them? Like, an, um, no, not in Southern California. Okay, so like I'm sure that tapered off a lot, having it illegal and everything. But there's still like a black market for this sort of thing. Yeah, it's crazy. So this past summer, I got appointed by the director of the Department of Fish and Wildlife for the state of California 
to sit on the Recreational Abalone Advisory Committee. And that's because there's still a fishery for Northern California. You can still go out and take um, red abalone up there, but it's very, very, very regulated. You can't go on scuba. It's, you know, really cold times of the year. It's 40 degrees up there almost all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's cold, cold. Um, you know, there's high surf. There's great white sharks up there. You, you know, you have to hold your breath to go find them. And um, they're kind of in remote locations. So it's really, it's a hard sport, but it's still open, um, but very regulated. But, uh, and there are farms actually, aquaculture, again, has figured out how to raise abalone. And you can buy them from farms. Um, you You always know if you're getting abalone on a menu from a farm, if it's three inches that's the size where they sell them off the farms because they grow so slow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like a five-year-old abalone. So a three-inch abalone. Oh, wow. That's five years is three inches? That's yeah. how – dang. So it, it, it's anywhere from three to five in, five years old. So the abalone, um, you can go to a restaurant and, and you can ask, you know, can I see the shell? Or if you're getting a piece of meat and it's a whole abalone, it's only three inches long, then you'll know that it came from a farm. Um, but a poached abalone – can sell for up to $250 because they're up to three pounds of meat. And these abalone sell for, you know, um, from the farms, they're about $20 to $30 a pound. So it's a pretty high wow. market value. And um, I just came from one of these meetings, the state-run meetings, actually two days ago. And the state wardens were telling me stories of all the poaching that they would stop over the summer, you know, during the high season when people are mm-hmm. out on weekends and they're, they're all out there, you know, trying to get their abalone and, um, and they're taking endangered species off some parts of the coast, the ones that you can't take anymore. And, uh, you know, stupid criminals aren't always smart, but the guy had videotaped himself with a thousand abalone in his oh, house. Uh, you know, brilliant. Dumb, brilliant. Stupid. So, and, and then of course, when they found him poaching, uh, then they went to his house and seized the video camera with a thousand on there, but um, but it's it's unfortunately um, the fines generally are easy to pay for people because they can make so much money on the abalone, you know, oh, a thousand abalone that's two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So um, and all over the world where abalone are found in the temperate seas of Korea and China and Japan and New Zealand and Australia and South Africa and Oman and the Middle East. They are endangered and threatened wherever they live because of the high-value meat. And this is the crazy part. So what, what they're finding is usually if, you're, if, if it's just a guy taking a few extra for his family, he'll, you know, he'll get caught and get slapped on the wrist. But if it's a, a real black market ring, it's connected to drug cartels. Isn't that crazy? Jeez, really? So <laughs> drug cartels are dealing abalone. I'm – <laughs> that's I'm, I mean that's shocking. It's, it's like, shocking. It, especially like the great lengths for Apple. Like this is like a thing. It's a thing. This is totally yeah, a thing. I've got reports laying right here on my desk, um, and and they're catching people who are also dealing, you know, heroin and crystal meth and and abalone and abalone. <laughs> yeah, you like open up your jacket pocket. What do you want? That's exactly what I picture. Yeah, it's like you know, you want some green abalone. Drugs on one yeah, side, yeah, abalone on the other. <laughs> well. Speaking of green abalone, you have a restoration project going on right now, correct? At the Green Abalone Restoration Project? 
Yes. It's, so get inspired. Started after we finished restoring the kelp forest, we thought, okay, well, what else can we grow? And using the same model, uh, having kids, you know, grow it in the classrooms, and then volunteers helping to plant it in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, long story short, and it is a long story, uh, <laughs> we are now we are now growing um, green abalone. I did a pilot project to make sure all this would work for two years, and. Um, We are now launching the Green Abalone Restoration Project. The project was successful. We got the highest um, survival rate for our abalone that anyone else has ever gotten in the history of abalone restoration. Nice. For the amount of time. It was a 15-month project, Mm -hmm. and we got 40% of our abalone to survive, which is actually very high. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So now the plan, actually, next Monday, a week from today, we're going to be spawning abalone up in Santa Barbara on the abalone farm. And um, we are going to be successful at getting them to spawn. Once they spawn, um, within about two weeks, we'll have millions of abalone babies running around microscopically in in the farm (laughs) tanks up there. And uh, I'm going to be paying the farmer to raise them for a year so that when we get them, they'll be about as big as a quarter. We're going to bring them back here to Southern California and put them in every public aquarium and as many classrooms as we possibly can. We're trying to raise all the funds for this right now to build nurseries and schools all over Southern California so that the kids and the aquariums can learn. You know, I said nobody under the age of 40 knows what they are because they've been gone since that long. So mm-hmm. the kids have will have a whole new generation of people who – know what abalone are the millions of people that visit the aquariums will see them in the aquariums and the aquariums will tell the story as they're growing because we need them to get to at least five years old before we can start planting them out in the ocean because everything in the ocean eats little tiny baby abalone Jeez, essential to life huh um that's well congratulations first of all on the pilot program and just getting on what you're doing like that's amazing like what legal steps did you have to go through just to even do that oh my god (laughs) <laughs> it, it is absolutely horrendous. Um, for the kelp project, we had to get permission from the Coast Guard, to, mm-hmm. and we had to prove that our kelp would not be navigational hazard. Crazy. How do, oh, like, so, what do you mean, like boats? Like, yeah. How do you wait? How did you prove that? <laughs> how do you go about proving something like that? Don't ask. Okay. We, had to write, we have to write <laughs> environmental impact reports mm-hmm. because there's nobody else doing this kind of work. So they, you know, when you say you need a permit. Or when somebody tells me I need a permit, I go, okay, well, what's the permit for? They're like, um, well, you're building in the ocean. Like, no, I'm not building. So I had to get all the permits that somebody would have to get to build a hotel. Oh, because my Because there's no special route for me. So I had to lease the land from the state of California to plant the kelp on. You got to be kidding me. I'm not kidding you. You got to be kidding me. I'm not that kidding That is you. ridiculous. And I'm just finding out right now because I'm uh, for the abalone – it took me three years to get a permit from the state of California to put animals back in the ocean that are already supposed to be there. Oh, I love it. Bureaucratic. I BS. know. Wow. Serious. <laughs> like, yeah, hey, I want to do some good in the world. By the way, three years later. Yeah. <laughs> that's so ridiculous. this is what. That's why I have six employers right now working as you know for as many people as possible, trying to make a living, while I 
spin my wheels, you know, trying to get all the permits in line and fundraise for these projects so I could build the nurseries in the classrooms. And, um, you know, pay, the aquarium's going to need fundraise, fundraising too, to, you know, to build the exhibits and tell the story with the graphics of, of the, uh, how we in one human lifetime nearly extinguished a species. <sighs> I feel like it's an age old story at this point. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's ridiculous. I was going to ask why that's so hard, but after the whole history of Avalonia, I understand. Um, and I feel like people would understand that too. Uh, in general, then, let's talk about the health of the ocean. Let's, let's move from Avalonia okay. to a little bit more broad of a topic. Well, I do. I want to throw something positive in there too, because oh, if I didn't, if I didn't believe in what I was doing, I wouldn't be doing it. And, and I actually struggled a lot for a while, um, on as a biologist, you know, I'm a biologist, that's the study of life. And mm -hmm. I've dedicated my life to the study of it, uh, in, in the life all around me. Um, and to, and to me, that's my spiritual connection in, in the life all around me. So I struggled a lot with whether, you know, this is evolution, whether we're not supposed to have abalone anymore or whether we're not supposed to have kelp anymore, if that's the result of us being here on the planet. Mm -hmm. And because that's also something that is natural, you know, mm -hmm. evolution. Right. And it wasn't, and really I struggled with it till last year, you know, back and forth. I mean, I know what I'm doing feels good to me. Mm -hmm. So when, when it feels good, you know, you continue to do things. But until last year, I read the book, The Sixth Extinction. Um, which is a very dismal story of the history of the extinctions events of, of our time. Just some light planet. reading, I guess. Light reading. <laughs> yeah. um, but it wasn't until I read that book that I realized that biodiversity is the greatest thing that we can give our planet if we want to be on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if I have no um, fear for our planet of surviving it's going to be just fine but if we'd like to be on it then biodiversity i think is our number one um, factor we need to worry about and as a human it's important to me that we keep all the living things that we have as much as possible so that's mm -hmm. the premise that i run on and what i know for sure is that nature can heal itself very quickly if given the opportunity because i've seen it Mm -hmm. And um, I could tell you that within a week of removing all those sea urchins off of a reef, algae starts to grow mm -hmm. and the reef starts to regenerate itself. It's absolutely fantastic. And of course it does because it's been here for four and a half billion years. So <laughs> of course it can do that. So I have every faith in our planet to regenerate itself if we just give it some space. Just give and it that a chance. Is why, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's why I do what I do. And I, I have hope for, you know, everybody's doom and gloom stories, even with climate change, that we can stop something and the earth will fix itself. I know that. It is my faith. So, um, so as a hopeful message, mm -hmm. I know all this is fixable and it's reversible. And it, I think that projects like the one that I'm running for Get Inspired and others – Give people an opportunity to have hope because they can play a role in the change. Not just donate money to something, but they can actually be the change. That, well, we just need like uh, 500 of you just <laughs> around. We'll scatter you around the coast. <laughs> I, I love that, Nancy. I think what you're doing is awesome. And the fact that you're just taking it on the right, like you're just 
grabbing it by the horns and just writing it out yourself. Like you're going through the process, right? Just three years yeah. getting your abalone project going, uh, the kelps of restoration. And this is just, you're an inspiration. That's awesome. I, 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 I like, how do you follow that up? Like I suck at life. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, it's also, it's also meant, you know, as my name, as the name, uh, says it's meant to inspire people to say, Hey, I can do something. Yeah. So I hope that everybody sees the stories that, you know, the videos and the, the radio programs and the podcasts like yours. And here's, um, the things that I say and they say, well, she's just one person. So I can do something too. Exactly. That's the whole idea. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Get inspired. <laughs> Activate them, man. <laughs> Jeez. I, well, we actually, we ran a little bit longer <laughs> yeah. than we thought, but like we didn't go through half the agenda that we wanted to like ask you like, I'm sorry. It, I can no, talk no, 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 no. Don't ever apologize. <laughs> if, if anything, you should apologize for not speaking more. Like we should have gone for like three hours. But um, I think we're just going to have to get you on the show again, especially for about whales. <laughs> um, whales yeah. and our other like hundred questions about the ocean that we're just completely <laughs> ignorant of. Yeah. Like, honestly, like I just want to know like episodes like this where. Um, like honestly, like this fascinates me. Don't get me wrong, but like it fascinates Justin in a little bit differently than it does me, just because he has more familiarity with the topic. When mm -hmm. I get in an episode doing this stuff with an expert like you, Nancy, and you're just talking about all this stuff, I'm like, a lot of times my mind's really blown. I'm really excited <laughs> for these particular episodes because I learn a ton. Like I would never have known. So mm -hmm. like, and that's a ridiculous that abalone is considered like illegal like a drug to some places <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, yeah like wow the black market huh um <laughs> I, I don't know do you want like do we think we have time for one more question uh yeah definitely okay. all right so we'll do the classic question <laughs> 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 what what has been well i think it might be obvious after the whale story but i'll ask it anyway all right your favorite experience and your worst experience while in the ocean um okay so my favorite experience it stemmed from uh 2000 like seven years ago my husband was watching national geographic channel and i walked by the tv and i caught an image on the TV and I just stood there and stared at it and I said, where is that? Mm -hmm. Because it was so striking. And I watched the rest of the show because I couldn't understand the British guy who was talking. <laughs> Tell me who, where this place was. So I watched the rest of the show so I could watch the credits and find out where the hell he was talking about. And it was a place called Raja Ampat. Yeah. That's why I couldn't understand Raja it. So this place is in the middle of nowhere off, off the northwest coast of Papua New Guinea. It's a sovereign nation um, next to Indonesia. And uh, it is the cradle of life in our world's oceans. And I knew it when I saw it because of some of the footage they were showing. I had never seen anything like it in my life. And I studied the oceans for a living. So I said, that's it. We're not going anywhere else until we save enough money to go to that place. That is awesome. So we did. Dude, that's and so cool. <laughs> we that's what that was my trip to the tropical Pacific that I said. So we got a flight from LA to Singapore to Bali to an, another flight to this tiny little island, another flight to a tiny little island where we oh, got geez. on a boat and traveled 1,100 miles across the Java Sea to go to this place. 
where the most number of fish were counted in one hour in a fish count that had ever been counted in the world. There's more indigenous species to that area than there are to any other places in the world. Um, and it is the, the crossover of three different oceans, the Pacific, the Java Sea, and the Indian Ocean. All the currents come through these islands and create the most fantastic ecosystem you've ever imagined in your life. And I went there. So it was just a, like a diving experience that was more unique than anyone you've ever been on. It was yes, it lasted for um, eleven days, and after every single dive, I would come up. They, I was on a boat that was they knew what they were doing, and they had a huge library, and I would spend an hour flipping through the book because I'd taken pictures of everything that I couldn't identify. I knew what family it was because it was related to something else that I knew of but I'd never seen it before. And I'd look up everything that I didn't know how to identify after every dive. You totally had a nerd out. <laughs> oh my God. It was nuts. That's awesome. It was nuts. So that was my favorite experience. I don't know if I could ever dive anywhere else, you know, and be in awe ever again. Right. Wow. What, what seen it all. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's, uh, that's my life. <laughs> all right. So what about the uh, not so great? What's one of your... Worst, worst experiences experience. diving in the ocean? Um, None. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it, ha- it happened when I, you know, I had vo- 250 volunteers that I was in charge of <laughs> coming out and diving with me. 250? And um, so I would take five or six of them out every time we'd go out diving. And long story short, I thought I lost two of them. <sighs> oh, my goodness. They were totally fine. But I couldn't find them, and I had to call the Harbor Patrol, and these are two really good friends of mine. Oh, and, my goodness. Uh, I had to call the Harbor Patrol and come out and do like a rescue. They asked me. I remember them asking me. This was like nine years ago. Is this a code red? They asked me that over the, the intercom, and I said yes because I couldn't find these people. And they were – the funny part is they were off in the distance waving their arms at me, and I couldn't see them. <laughs> Oh my goodness! And so, it, and it was all just a big misunderstanding. But, but for those moments, you must have been absolutely moments, terrified. I, I thought I had lost them, yeah. and they were never in any danger. They were in twenty-five feet of water. They did their <laughs> dive like they're supposed to, but um, for some reason, we got we went in different directions, and mm. I expected them to be in one place, and they were in another, and so. That was a horrifying experience. I can't even imagine. I feel like terrified when I don't know where my dog is. Right. <laughs> like, and you have divers you're responsible for and they're your friends. So it's just kind of like, uh, oh man. So we named that reef Lost Boys Reef. <laughs> nice. That's good times. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Nancy, uh, where can people find you online? www.getinspiredinc.org and that's just one word at that point right getinspiredinc.org yep cool um Nancy, this is awesome. I we have to figure out how to get you back on the show. Um there's <laughs> like that. there's way too many questions that we didn't get answered for. Um yeah, thank you for taking the time to be on this episode at least. Yeah, and yeah. thanks for all the work you do. That's just that's an incredible. When you go to get inspired, it's just a picture of her with like just a bio. That's it. It's like, <laughs> all right, I'm inspired. <laughs> She's done so much. <laughs> no, I really hope people after listening to this episode they check you out and uh, just get involved with what you're doing because it's it's incredible work and it's awesome that you are a one woman show. And uh, you, you pretty much no one's getting in your way. You don't really care what the obstacle is. It seems like you're just going to get it done. So yes. yeah, 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 uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyways, Nancy, thank you again for being on the show. And uh, I think that was super informative. Yeah. Thanks. Hopefully we'll have you back soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. For what she's done like by herself and how she's rallied people around her uh, or community, uh, Nancy is a boss. That is absolutely amazing what she's done. Yeah. Much respect to her and all the people helping out. You know, um, when we recorded this episode, it was actually uh, one of the first episodes we recorded. Uh, This is actually recorded years ago. Um, So some of the stuff we said may have been dated, but uh, if anyone wants to get involved with what Nancy's doing currently, uh, she's currently uh, part of the the Green Abalone Restoration Project. um, And she's doing this, I'm not sure if she's doing it, but it's called Cruising for Abalone. Uh, Check it out on getinspiredinc.org, but uh, it's on Thursday, June 7th, 2018 from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, check them out. See if you can get involved with that. Uh, I I have nothing but like positive thoughts and high hopes for what Nancy's doing. She's she's amazing. I mean, I don't think they'll be serving abalone as like appetizers <laughs> on the cruise, but they're more in the in the habit of uh, helping them yeah. instead of serving them. But good disclo- good disclosure there, Justin. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no worries. I do what I can. <laughs> so once again, everyone, uh, this episode of The Interesting Hour is brought to you by Core Foundation. Uh, check us out at cor-foundation.org and also Get Inspired Inc. Check them out at getinspiredinc.org. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. Peace. Bye-bye. 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 B